You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Jeffrey Tubin joins us to talk about American Eras, his latest bestseller about the 1974 kidnapping, crimes, and trial of Patty Hearst. In addition to being the author of seven books, including The Nine, the prize-winning exhaustive study of the Supreme Court, Jeff is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the person to turn to on legal issues at CNN. Thank you so much for being here. Good to be with you, Jim. What motivated you to write about Patty Hearst, especially at this time? I did a story for The New Yorker about a gang in Baltimore that took over a jail. I got in the history of the gang, which was formed in California during the 70s when there was a tremendous amount of political ferment in prisons and that led me to the Symbionese Liberation Army which also came out of the California prisons. In a larger sense I just found the story incredibly compelling and bizarre and interesting and in terms of you know the topicality of it we are now in a moment where we are wondering what makes someone join ISIS? What makes someone become a terrorist? And it's mostly a question that we ask about Brussels or Paris. But it happened here, too. So that had a real topical And there are some similarities me. because she was well-educated, wealthy. And you see that with some of the ISIS converts. Absolutely. And one of the things that we have tried to do with these issues of what makes someone a terrorist is we try to have a template. We try to have a cookie cutter that says this is what makes someone a terrorist. And if we've learned anything, we've learned that there is no one template. There are millions of young people in Europe, young Muslims, who wouldn't remotely consider becoming terrorists, but some do. And how we identify them, and how we identified them in the United States in the 70s, was a hard question, and it still is a hard question. And every parent's worst nightmare, just like it was for the Hearst parents. That's right, and part of the sinister appeal of this story is that it's like, how could a good kid go so wrong? And unfortunately, the answer is a lot of good kids go wrong, not with such a celebrated last name, but if you look at all the other members of the Symbionese Liberation Army, except for Donald DeFries, who was the leader, they all came from middle class or even upper middle class backgrounds. And there were five women, and four of them were high school cheerleaders. I don't think that means that being a high school cheerleader is a predictor of future terrorist activity. Hope not, because that's a big sport in Texas. It's a, it's a, it's a big sport. And, uh, well, other books have been written about Patty Hearst. What did you discover that broke new ground, if you will? You know, no journalist has looked into this in more than 30 years. And I had access to 150 boxes of material that Bill Harris, one of the SLA members, had accumulated over the years. And I think all subjects look different with the passage of time. There are certainly documents and facts that I got to that other journalists hadn't gotten to. But more than that, I just think distance matters. You know, there, we're still writing new biographies of Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing because all of what we know is reflected through the prism of our own times. And that's not something to shy away from, in my view. It's just something to recognize. Now, a question that I know you're always asked about this book is, did you interview Patty Hearst? And did she authorize or provide any support at all? No. She, she 
<laughs> the opposite of support. She's certainly discouraged. Did she hang up on you? She hung you? up on me in our one, our one conversation. She's in her early 60s. She has moved on. She's a widow. She's a grandmother. She raises show dogs, shih tzus. And she doesn't want to revisit this subject. She also, in particular, does not want to answer questions about some of the parts of her behavior that she didn't even like to talk about in the old days. You know, uh, the word consensual might play the a role. Consensual and also the whole idea of why she was robbing not one bank but three banks, why she was setting off bombs, shooting up streets in Los Angeles. It's but I guess the bottom line, was she a willing accomplice or, or was she trying to survive? That's the question at the heart of, of, of the book and it's the question that everybody wants to know the answer to. And my view is that she was kidnapped in a horrible and dangerous and scary way, and it was a uniquely terrifying experience for her. But over time, she did become a voluntary member of the Symbionese Liberation Army, and she did voluntarily commit crimes, and she did pass up many, many opportunities to return to her former life. And the only explanation I can find is that she passed up those opportunities because she didn't want them. She wanted to stay where she was. And let me ask you this, she w has been legally rehabilitated by the assistance of two presidents, which is pretty rare. How did that come about? She received a commutation from President Jimmy Carter after serving 22 months of a seven-year sentence. And much later, she received a full pardon from President Clinton on the last day of his presidency, both of which, I think, are lessons in the power of wealth and privilege. Is that, you know, there are a lot of people in our prisons who got mixed up with bad people and made bad choices. But none of them get executive grace from even one president, much less two. It surprises me that Jimmy Carter would do that. He seems so straight-laced and... Well, but I, I think Carter's religion had a lot to do with it. I think Carter is obviously someone who's very serious about his faith, and he believes in redemption, and he believes in forgiveness. There was something about this case that really touched him deeply because he not only gave the commutation, but his lobbying of President Clinton was the key factor that led Clinton to give pardon much later. You know, one of the things that I had forgotten, or if I'd ever known, was the Symphony's Liberation Army really didn't have much of a structure. I and mean, I was at thinking it was like the Red Brigades or something like that, but it really wasn't, was it? Well, you know, they called themselves an army, but it had, you know, at most a dozen people in it. It was hardly an army. They operated in an incredibly seat-of-the-pants way. If they hadn't killed two people, there would be something very comic about them because they really didn't know what they were doing and they sort of made things up from moment to moment. They thought that they were the American heirs to the Red Brigades in Italy, the Bader-Meinhof Gang in Germany, the Tupamaros in Uruguay, but they were uniquely American incompetence. You know, you've covered another case in great detail and that was O.J. Simpson and everyone thinks about the Bronco going down the, the freeway. But there was the 1975 shootout here with Patty Hearst. And tell us what it was and how it really changed the way news is covered today. Well, you know, after they robbed the bank in San Francisco, the SLA fled to Los Angeles. And Los Angeles had a local station called KNXT, and NXT stood for Experimental Television. They had access to the first minicam in local news. Previously, the only way live television could be broadcast is if cable had been laid long in advance like at a political convention or a World Series game. But here, all you needed was a truck. And the KNXT sent out its truck 
on May 17, 1974, where the SLA was having its confrontation with the Los Angeles Police Department. And that confrontation, which led to the deaths of all six SLA members inside, was really the first breaking news event ever covered on television. So it was covered live? It was covered live and in that respect anticipated all of our current news because news is usually covered live now, but in particular things like the Bronco Chase, which of course you know is so memorable to people because mm -hmm. we all saw it live. You know, we have time for one more question, and I certainly want to take advantage of you being the CNN legal analyst uh, to give us your perspective on Judge Merrick Garland's nomination. Do you think we'll see him installed next year? Well, we certainly won't see him installed this year. I mean, the, the Senate Republicans have made quite clear that he will not get a vote before November. I think they have also made it clear they will not vote on him in the lame duck period from November to January. If Hillary Clinton is elected in November, I think it's very likely that she will renominate Merrick Garland, that she will take the opportunity that, you know, he is not as liberal or as young as uh, some of the other mm -hmm. potential nominations. And, you know, she's going to have a big agenda for the Senate. And if she were to pick someone more controversial, that would be guaranteed to gum up the works for quite some time. It, it became so polarized, but what really is the historical precedent of a nomination to the Supreme Court in the last year? There have been nominations and confirmations in the last year. The length and level of obstruction by the Republican Senate is unprecedented. But I think it's important to remember that confirmation is a political process, mm -hmm. and it has always been a political process, and the Supreme Court is extremely important to the Republican Party, and this is a, an enormously important seat because it's the loss of a conservative vote, the vote of Justice Scalia. So they are fighting tooth and nail. The idea that Supreme Court nominations were ever outside of politics is a false one. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us. It's a remarkable book. Uh, American Heiress, and I understand it's already in the top ten in New York Times. Hopefully with the support of the World Affairs Council, it'll move in the top five. That's what we want. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.